0: Welcome to Raising It, a podcast series by Noble Ambition that shares the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropy campaigns from the leaders who delivered them. During the past decade in Australia, we've seen more record-breaking multi-million dollar gifts announced than ever before. These gifts have transformed the charitable sector for the benefit of communities everywhere. But while we celebrate the philanthropists associated with these gifts the stories of how these gifts came into being often remain untold. Raising It takes you behind the scenes to hear directly from the individuals who made these campaigns happen. We'll meet amazing leaders committed to achieving their noble ambitions through philanthropy, in education, health, marriage equality, climate change, and more, and hear how they galvanize boards, teams, and donors into making the impossible possible. The host of this series is me, Melissa Smith, founder and CEO of Noble Ambition, with almost 20 years experience in philanthropy and fundraising, and Australia's only global fundraiser of the year. I hope that by sharing these stories of inspiring leadership, we can encourage others to achieve their own noble ambitions. This week's episode tells an important and well-known story about a noble ambition of equality and galvanising a social movement for change. It involves many great leaders, campaigners, volunteers, Australian heroes like Magda Subansky and Ian Thorpe, and hundreds of thousands of individuals across Australia that ultimately voted yes to marriage equality in November 2017. The episode also tells the lesser-known story about the the behind-the-scenes philanthropic and fundraising leadership and the role philanthropy played in achieving the YES outcome. Not only was a record-breaking $10 million raised in two years and a matter of weeks, but the campaign also set a new benchmark in what can be achieved by bringing together advocacy and philanthropy and raise the ambitions of other social movements and campaigns across Australia. I would like to welcome Tom Snow to the podcast. Tom is the former co-chair of the Equality Campaign, chair of Snow Medical, and chair of Equality Australia, which he co-founded with Anna Brown to continue advocating for equality. Welcome, Tom Snow, to Thank the you. podcast. So just to ground us a little bit in who Tom Snow is, growing up in Canberra, you grew up in what became a very philanthropic family. Do you have early memories of philanthropy when you were young?
1: I've got lots of... Um Beautiful memory was when I was young. One of the important things is is where my mum came from. And she was actually a product of this was her second marriage when she had me as a child. And she went through a really hard, a really hard divorce. So she was a single mum with two children. And she was actually near like absolute scraping the barrel of bankruptcy through that time. And she had an incredibly tough few years. And that reflected a lot on our childhood like we were given every opportunity every opportunity and like you know I, I you know I, I don't walk away from the tremendous privilege that I've had growing up in a family where I begin every opportunity but at the same time we were really made to think about everything that we were given and and we weren't spoiled as kids it really made you wor- really understand what a dollar was worth and that that could go to people who are who needed it more. And, you know, there are people, mum had been that person who needed it more previously in her life. Um, so, our family, we always had a sense of others and service to the community being important. Um, quite early on, when Dad had done very well in his business, he set up the Snow Foundation. And that was really one of the very first family foundations in Australia. And that was very much part of what the family did and we all contributed thought and ideas to that. But more than that, we always did stuff on our own account and it wasn't just, you know, doing something as, you know, dad's thing, et cetera. You know, we all worked in the community, but they all are serv- involved in service in the community in, in one way, shape or form. And so, you know, it's, it's also you, you have, when, when you're lucky like we are, you, you have a responsibility.
0: Well, that's lovely grounding of of to think what all then came after this. before we jump into the marriage equality campaign and that same-sex marriage was growing in momentum globally, I first of all want to ask you why is this important to
1: you? I remember you know when I grew up being gay was tough in my family, in where I grew up and it's still tough for people. Even today here across Australia, not everyone, some people, it's, you know, it's a pretty cool journey, but for many people, it's still very tough. I remember not being able to be out at work. Um, and, you know, sh- sh- trying to hide from being gay for an employer or, or, you know, once you got a bit more confident, having to come out to every single person you ever met because they, they you know, everyone assumes you're straight and, and then you have to go, Oh, no, no, I'm not. And so, and so you know, th- there was always something there for me. There was always an injustice there. There's always been injustice at law. Um, And, you know, we as a community have suffered from that and I've seen people really hurt from that. Um, But what really inspired me was when I had children and so I've got three children now. And what really frustrated me was that their parents' relationship and their family was not recognised at law the same as you know my straight friends' relationships and my straight friends' families, and it really hurt us. And there are still laws that are discriminatory against gay and lesbian Australians in this country, against families in this country. But this was a, a glaring one. Marriage equality was a glaring one because it was it, 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 relationships, gay and, gay and lesbian relationships, opposite sex relationships, um, and. Right. Rainbow families like ours had been recognised across the, across the world. Not in every country, but in most of our OECD partners. And here we were, Australia, a country that most of us think is a pretty fair go, decent country. We were not recognising. My relationship or my family, Um, and I was growing increasingly frustrated by it. And obviously, we're seeing so many wins overseas, and here we were being promised time after time. You know, yes, it'll be the next the next election. Yes, it'll be the next term. And you know, I remember Tony Abbott saying, "Oh, yes, it'll be the next term of government. We'll consider it." And then the next term of government came around, and and you know, it just there was nothing. And so, what happened was um, the Irish. One, they won overwhelmingly in a referendum, and they had to go through a referendum because they um, had to change the constitution. Because the constitution in Ireland said that marriage had to be in man and woman, which is very different to Australia. So they went through that process, and everyone was like, "Well, what about Australia?" And so everyone was asking him, and particularly Warren Inch. Warren is is in the Liberal Party, but he's well regarded by the Conservatives, and so he'd said to Tony. Well, you know, why can't we progress this? Why can't we treat this as equally? Um, you know, Tony's sister Christine Forster, she was sort of saying, saying similar things to him. Many others were saying similar things to him. He said, um, "This is something that needs to be considered by both sides of Parliament." And everyone saw that as okay. Well, that's a that's a, a nod to go ahead and, and prepare some legislation. So Warren Ent got together with a couple of other liberals and. Labor and the Greens to prepare a piece of legislation for marriage equality in Australia, and so this was uh, the first half of 2015, and about mid 2015 it was coming up to the coming up to the Parliament. It was all going to happen, going to happen, and I was thinking, well, you know, our family's really lucky. We own and run Canberra Airport. How about we offer? To the marriage equality movement, the ability to use Canberra Airport as a platform to, to, to publicize this going to Parliament. We're talking to the marketing team and um, the marketing team uh, said to us, Oh, no, you know what? We can, um, we've got all these LED lights on the terminal. Um, you know, we can. Actually do them any color <laughs> anyway. So you, you talk to a gay man about lighting and suddenly Canberra airports <laughs> lit up in rainbow colors, which we, so, but, and it made a big splash. in, in the end, we had our family standing yeah. at the front of Canberra airport with Canberra airport lit up in rainbow colors on the front page of every Fairfax uh, paper across the country. It was, it was amazing. And so suddenly this massive, enf- you know, pushed this, the, the marriage equality thing so far, so far forward. Um, but at the same time, I've gone from, you know, thinking we'll do a few posters to suddenly being on the front page of the paper. And then suddenly you get involved. I don't know if your, your listeners remember this, but there was a marathon, marathon session in the Liberal Party room. It went from like 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. It was like six or seven hours, um, where they've debated it. And all they wanted was it to be heard in the parliament and there to be a free vote. They didn't want to force anyone's vote. All they wanted was the ability for it to be heard and for the ability for them to be able to vote the way they, they, They they wanted to respect their conscience. Tony Abbott had stacked that someone would put forward that there'd be a a plebiscite or a a referendum. And that sort of got a little bit of sway in that meeting. At the end of it, Tony Abbott came out of that meeting and he said, Well, there was not totally conclusive. The view was probably not that it shouldn't be a free vote, but there was a view that potentially there could be a a referendum or a plebiscite. Unfortunately, the the sensible liberals then sort of thought, Oh, well, yeah we don't want the, a referendum maybe the best you know maybe a, a compromise could be this plebiscite thing So they sort of got trapped into this plebiscite um, into this plebiscite So this was August 2015 that was terrifying. I think every LGBTIQ Australian and their friends and their families and plenty of other decent people thought this is terrifying because you, Remember it. The last time there was a constitutional vote, it it all looked fantastic at the start. Everyone was, you know, 60, 70% support. Mm-hmm. And in there they lost it and lost it resoundingly. Yeah. So that was on the yeah. Republic, that's right. Yeah. And you know, you look at the history of these things, they really get up. They really get up. And so everyone looks at it now today and goes, oh yeah, it was all fantastic. And it was, but that's because we engineered it that way and, th- and this is part of that story. But at that time, it was absolutely terrifying. That's where I got involved. That's where I said to the marriage equality movement, Australian marriage Quality, let's get going, let's create something. We've got to oppose this plebiscite, but at the same time, if it happens, and we got to oppose it really hard, and in the end we did oppose it, we did everything we could, we took it to the high court. But... We also prepared and we also got ready. I remember, so we started talking to politicians, um, and, and very quietly, very underhand, Like it was, it was, and we got together very confidentially at that time. And and I have now been given permission to talk to this someone from Bill Shorten's office because Bill was absolutely against the, the plebiscite, but he he also realised we needed to prepare, but he did not not want. His fingerprints on anything, but he he secretly had someone from his office. We had people from the Greens, we had a few Liberals, and we had Australian Marriage Quality and a few other people. We we met weekly, sort of. Started to go, how are we going to win this? How are we going to create a campaign vehicle? And I remember very distinctly, Tim Wilson said, "Well, I hope you guys realize this thing's going to cost ten or twenty million dollars, and we've got to get this thing going." I had seen the accounts of Australian Marriage Equality at this time, and I think their biggest donation that t- that stage had been around thirty thousand dollars for some polling wow and they're probably you know they'd raised you know you know not much more than that you know they'd done some great things because the, the, the to that day the amazing work and it was truly amazing work had been done by volunteers working their best intentions doing the great things at the same time our opposition, like, you know, we had plenty of opposition, but let's just say, you know, you know, we had all the various churches that, you know, we ended up putting millions each in to to the campaign against us. You know, just one of them, Australian Christian Lobby, they had 16 full time staff in office, paid office accommodation in Canberra, hundreds of meters from Parliament House. And no wonder. They were beating us. No wonder every single time we tried to do something, they they were they were way ahead of us because they were spending all the time. You know, they had paid staff constantly in and out of offices, doing morning teas, do, you know, do lobbying, lobbying, lobbying. And we, you know, we were just flying up to Canberra occasionally. So we were looking at this, going, ten. You know, we got to raise 10, 20, mm-hmm. We didn't even know thirty million dollars. We didn't even know how much it cost at that stage, but we knew it was tens of millions. Um, and said, mm-hmm. how how's this going to happen? And I remember going home, um. That night, to my husband at the time, and said, "We've got to raise, I don't know, ten or twenty million dollars," <laughs> and it was terrifying. Yeah. And that night, we decided. I said, "Well, well, if we're going to do that, we have to make a commitment to to change the to frame the problem differently for people who are giving. So it's not, yeah, I'm going to give ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars, which for a lot of people is an enormous amount and is fantastic. But there are people. Who can give a lot more than that. And we needed to be talking to those people and saying, we need to be talking about million dollar gifts. We need to be talking about hundred thousand dollar gifts. And the only way of doing that was to, 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 do it yourself. Um, and I'd been in the extremely fortunate position where my business that I was running at the time, which I which I then left to and sold to run the campaign, had been doing extremely well. So you know, we were so fortunate to do that and effectively that then kicked off and underwrote the campaign and we were able to employ first people and we were able to then start to talk to other fund, you know, other donors.
0: So in December 2015, you established Australians for Equality, which you co-chaired with Anna Brown and with co-chairs Alex Greenwich and Janine Middleton, which you joined with Australian Marriage Equality. So you begin to provide a formal structure for this campaign And you've decided with your former husband, Brooke Horn, to give a million dollars to start the campaign, which allowed you to get some staff. What did you need all this money for? Just to be clear for those listeners who aren't familiar with advocacy campaigns, what was the money
1: for? In real simple terms, the most important thing you can put money to in an advocacy campaign is people. Um, But if you want it professionally done and done full-time, you need to pay, and you need to pay people well. Uh, it, you can't. I mean, everyone who came to us, without exception, took a pay cut. To win campaigns, you really do need to have people who who know how to do it. It it, it, it isn't just a matter of running up to Canberra and walking around. I mean, you've got to do that too. But there's so much you've got to do behind the scenes. This is you know. Don't forget, there were several years before we got, two years before we got to the plebiscite. Once we got to the plebiscite, yes, we did need some money for and quite a lot of money for advertising. Um, but up until that point, it was 90% of our budget was people.
0: Okay. So therefore, you know you need to raise 10 to 20 million. You've got, it's unknown actually the time frame that you need to raise it within, but you know you need to do it fast. You need to hire good people. You've got a million dollars on the table. What did you do next? How did you raise the
1: next amount? My background was as a, um, as a fund manager. So what we used to do, my, my job was pitching up to people with pitch books, with professional, like really professionally done slide decks, background material, due diligence, and say, well, here's an investment. This is why you should be investing in this thing and then delivering them and delivering them a return. Now I saw. A donation into marriage equality is exactly the same thing. It's actually an investment. They don't want a dollar return on that investment, but they want something done. They want a promise and they want that promise fulfilled. So what we had to do was therefore two things: one, prepare the the organisation such that it it was a professional organisation with a business plan, with audited accounts, with due diligence documents, and you know with a serious plan about how we're going to do it. And the pitch book, you know, there was there were two pitch books: there's a basic one which was something like twenty pages, but the full due diligence pack was an inch and a half thick full, and showing people that this is a professionally run campaign. Mm-hmm. By this stage in the cycle, it didn't take long to convince people of the need. Um, in some cases, there was some of that, but the, the need for a campaign. And so, you know, by the stage we got to talking to serious donors, we had prepared and we had a really good Pitch about how we're going to do it, what our business plan was, and we had a couple of our key staff already in place. You know, we we and, we, and showing this is what we're going to do. This is the you know this is the timeline. This is the sort of campaign we'd done all our um, research at that stage on how Australians thought, what was important for them, how we were going to convince them to 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 vote yes. So you had a it's compelling case,
0: and you had an understanding of what your messages were. But there ended up being four key donors that underpinned the campaign to start off with including yourself. Were they essential to securing and securing early?
1: Yeah, yeah. So so after we had so we did have to prepare quite a bit of that stuff to start with before we got any of those four key donors. What I realized is that to get to 10 million dollars you go, "Well, I need three or four people at a million. I need you know some people at $100,000, 200 thousand dollars." and then even then I need quite a lot of people like a lot of people at $10,000 and $20,000 and that's sort of how we did it and then and then there's also very importantly there's the people giving $5 and $10. I think in most most campaigns I'm sure that you've seen you need some cornerstone people to get the thing going. So I had this idea it's like oh well I know Alan Joyce you know he's he's doing some great work with us and he'd offered to host a a dinner or a lunch. And so we said, oh, can we have a dinner? And he said, yeah. And so he was doing the, his, his, the invitation was his organized bars. And, you know, we had some ideas, of some people. And so we, we invited those along. I think we ended up having about, I don't know, 18 people in the room. And we went through the pitch and you, you know, you have various people talk at the dinner and then you sort of, at the end, of course, you outline the problem. We need 10, you know, <laughs> And that's when I said, well, I've, I've, contributed one and that's how we have got so far this is all the work we've done and then of course there's a bit of silence and um you never expect people to give at the dinner it normally happens you you, you do it afterwards but anyway my, my old man was at the dinner um and he said well um Tom's given one so I'll um I'll give one as well which I'd, I had no idea he was going to say. I was like, oh, my God, my heart jumped. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, and let's get this clear. My, my old man, you know, is an, you know, is an old bloke from Canberra, which is a bit of a country town, you know. It's a, the gay thing wasn't always the most easy thing, but for him to go, wow, I got, first of all, he's lit, lit the airport up in rainbow colours. Yeah, that's a good and start. And then now he's like putting real money on the table. Um, I was like blown wow. away. Um, and then Alan Joyce goes, no, well, I, I'll, I'll do one as well. And then Alan said, "I'll talk to Paul." Paul did. Paulo Sullivan did the same. Um, so it was it was the most astounding moment. Yeah. Um, because suddenly we had a campaign to run. Because at, before that, it was like, God oh, this all the pressure's on me, all the burdens on me." In terms of the money, it was just Brooke and I. Um. So yeah, it was. It was. It was. So it was one t- dinner, what,
0: which of course was. P- previously a huge amount of work went into to building the case for that one dinner. And at that one night, you had confirmed your pledge or commitment again. Your father committed Snow Foundation for a million dollars. Alan Joyce committed $1 million and committed to speaking with Paul O'Sullivan, who then came on for a million dollars. Is that correct? That's right. So you, therefore yeah. you had $4 million.
1: We had $4 million. but But also one of the conditions was it was only of the – of Terry – Alan and Paul. It was only two hundred and fifty thousand dollars until the, the plebiscite or the postal surveys it ended up being was announced, yeah. and then the remaining amount afterwards. So we sort of had two hundred and fifty from those three, a million from me for the for the preparatory works.
0: So you had a bit of runway, but this is the precarious because of it's all the timing, all the shifting sands of what's happening with an advocacy right. campaign.
1: And, and we were let's be clear at that stage, we were expecting the plebiscite pretty quickly. Yeah, and a, as it so turned out, because we did try and stop the plebiscite, which which was the right thing to do, although we were criticised a lot by it, for it, um, it. It also, uh, you know, the, the the campaign went a lot longer than than we weeks hoped, and of course, when you're paying salaries, the campaign went yep. on and on. The start of 2017, we had killed off the plebiscite in the Senate. This is the one the government trying to put through. Mm-hmm. It was a really, really tough time because we had killed off the plebiscite in the Senate, but then the expectation upon us by our the LGBTIQ community was that we'd end up with marriage equality, yeah. but we had no path. It was really, really tough. But, and we'd done so much work. Now, that we had a couple of... Big ideas. One was to refer the Senate inquiry, the the, the bill that went through the Senate to um to an, to, to a Senate inquiry. Mm-hmm. That sort of kept it going. But what was also really important, we really got out of the the killing the plebiscite in the Senate. And this is a bit technical, so excuse me for going off mm-hmm. off piece a bit. But we got a draft bill by George Brandis, the Attorney General, put a draft bill in with that. That was the first time we'd ever had a draft bill for marriage equality by a government. So that was really important. Um, and what we were able to do is pick up that bill and put it into a Senate inquiry about the bill. And what that meant with that with that Senate inquiry is it sort of kept it bubbling just a little bit. Now it wasn't momentum, but it kept it going over the summer period. There's one really thing that was quite interesting. and that was um, when we had in our back pockets this letter written by a group of CEOs. and I'm going, this is not great news like you know it'll, it'll get in the afr probably the back page of the afr or something probably like a two inch column anyway we we, and we, we had it signed by the ceos and it was we had not been signed by one ceo of a, of the big four banks because we knew that person was um not that supportive for marriage equality anyway we thought we, we'd better offer them to sign it because you can't have them not be offered yeah. we were just about to send it off so we sent it off to be offered and lo and behold two days, three days after that. But it got leaked to the Australian and it got leaked onto the front page of the Australian because it was a leak. And that gazumped Turnbull's Snowy Hydro 2.0 plan. And so on the top of Snowy Hydro's 2.0 plan on the Australian was was this big thing about this leak about the CEOs. And then Peter Dutton got up and sort of criticised the CEOs. And so it gave this thing energy. For two weeks, there were two weeks of parliament. The only... Single agenda that was on the top of the paper every day those two weeks was marriage equality, which is not what the coalition wanted to be no talking right. about. They wanted to be talking about all these great, great proposals they've been doing. So what was really interesting because I'd been in Parliament that week, we had been going from a stage where it's like, ah, oh, you'll never get marriage equality. You know, you have to wait till the next term of government. This is talking to coalition people, and not necessarily, you know. But by the end of the week, a lot of them were saying, well, this um. This, uh, we've gotta solve this. Now they didn't know how they were going to solve it. That that was the problem. But to have a rhetoric for, and I, it was really interesting because we were not talking to our supporters at this stage. You know, I was just dropping into people who were like who would respectfully have a discussion with you. And they're like, okay, we've got to solve it. We've got to get it off the agenda. So it was a really good mind shift. That CEO letter had a really big turnaround in the mind shift of coalition MPs and senators to basically going, oh, we'll just push it off. To no, no, we've got to solve this before the next election because they could see that it was going to take up all their headspace and and you know all the press time.
0: So, unlike fundraising for programs or a capital build, which is a very clear tangible outcome, you're pretty understandable about variables and timeframes of how you're going to achieve that end goal. There are so many moving parts of this campaign. That level of detail is actually really critical, particularly for your sophisticated supporters who know just the swings and roundabouts of trying to get things through The parliament. So, how did you still maintain that resilience and momentum? Because you still needed to raise a lot of money. Next up, once you locked in those top four $1 million gifts, you began going to institutional funders. That's right. Leonard Vary was really important helping open and advocate for support. Tell me, how did you go about securing foundations and supporters to help that, that next level of the campaign?
1: Well, that, that's right. That's really important. So, so let's sort of go back because I've got to sort of mid twenty seventeen. From the start, we had started to then we had started engage, and we'd spent a lot of time engaging with um, anyone we thought would be supportive. So, yes, institutional givers, other LGBTI, you know, high net worth type people, um, all sorts of people like that. Um, uh, Leonard Vary and the Maya Foundation were really important. And I really remember the Maya Foundation. Um, it's quite powerful for me. Um, I was invited to their board meeting after we'd pitched to Leonard. He said, Okay, well, I'll take you to the board. And I presented to the board and they, they just got it straight away. They just got the issue. They understood that they needed to help solve it. And they, they, you know, they, they, were supportive, and and, and I think they, they they must have told me in the meeting, because I remember I was just that the, they were going to donate in the meeting, and I remember I was struck. Like I was just like, this is the first time that I had experienced, you know, an institutional investor, like you know, my foundation, the my family, their their old money, like this, like stand up for people. That I had seen stand up for my community. Now, I'm sure that many people had done it before, but it's the first time I had experienced it. And, you know, going back to my comment before, you know, when I first started my career, I was not out and I didn't think it was safe to be out in the workforce. And here I was sitting in the Maya Foundation's boardroom talking to captains of industry and them just going, yeah, we've got to stand for this, this thing. And I'm, I was like, wow. I just, I was blown away by the response and that we had a, a, a very substantial donation from them. And that, so they were the first institutional giver outside of Snow Foundation. And if it was then I sort of thought, you know, you have moments in the campaign where you're like, oh, yeah, this is, we could get this. We could win this. I remember going, if we can get the Maya Foundation to support this. Now, in hindsight, I didn't realize how progressive that they were. <laughs> now I know them well. Um, but I thought, you know, if, if, if these sort of people are willing to look after my people, then, you know, th- we've got a chance of getting ordinary Australians across the line.
0: So it started becoming even
1: more real started becoming real. And we had lots of wins like that. And there were some great families and um, uh, who, who who helped. I think a lot of fundraising campaigns struggle with this. Um, if there's not a due by date, a lot of people go, oh, well, you know, I th- I'm really supportive. Maybe when or- But where's the urgency? Where's the urgency? And so you need urgency. And coming back to the real campaign, we've done a lot of work. We've done a lot of, you know, Big dinners with people, smaller dinners, lunches, you know, we've done all sorts of formats and, you know, information sessions, lots of one-on-ones. But really getting any substantive funds other than ones we've mentioned was tough. And coming back to then the timeline on the yep. campaign, going to June 2017, we had no money. Like we we literally had no money. Every week we had a spreadsheet where we were working out all the wages that we had to pay all the um, holiday pay that we had to wind up the campaign. And I remember it was counting down. We had only like three or four weeks to go by sort of the start of June 2017. And I was like, I, and, you know, we, we couldn't tell our stuff. The campaign is about confidence. Exactly. And exuding, we're going to get there, we're going to get there. But I can tell you, it was not much fun in the in the boardroom. Fortunately, this was just before end of financial year. So this was in um, May 2017. Yeah. In June 17, we raised, you know, a little bit of money in the yeah. financial year, which is a great time to raise money. So, yep, there's an, there's an urgency date. Um, so we got a little bit of money and I remember, oh yeah, that's great. We've got another, like we've got another three months We somehow we can get something in August. As we were hope by this stage, we'd sort of had a bit of information that yeah. August was going to be the time where we'd be, we might be given the nod to a free vote or something like that. Um, so, but I, I can tell you that, that, you know, the campaign was was weeks away from being wound up, and it was only, we only just made it across the line.
0: So on the 9th of August, that's when the solution of a non legislative method through the Australian Bureau of Statistics to run a voluntary, non binding postal survey was decided. So it was on.
1: So it was on. We we'd had a couple of days notice that before that that it was on. And I remember going, oh, God, I was thinking about the damage that it caused to our community. Um, And it did cause damage. And I think that, you know, you have to acknowledge that there were people hurt by the process. But you also have to remember that there'll be a lot of people being hurt by just going on and on and on as well. So, um, and certainly for me, I was getting hurt by going on and on and on to some extent, I was like, I just, I can't. Well, we had no money. We would have been winding up the campaign and I personally don't think I could have gone beyond the end of 2017. I just don't think I could have done it. It was really hard. It, we had given it our all. You know, we were getting criticised by our own side. We were getting criticised by the other side. But with the announcement happening, we split the team in two. We, we had Anna Brown and a few members of the team went on to try and challenge it yeah. in the high court. The good thing about it, going on and on for two years from 2015 to 2017, was back then we actually had a pretty well-running team. Um, everyone knew how to work together. We had done so much work building up a a bank of um, talent of people who could tell their own stories and our campaign was about real stories, real people and the real effects and so every time the media call said we need uh, a lesbian couple from country Victoria who are teachers, you know, we'd looked up our database and we'd done them, we'd trained them they were all ready to go. You know, we, we need this, we need a, you know, a couple from here or there. We had so many people trained up to do, you know, tell those individual yeah. stories. We also had the goodwill of of the community that we're talking about, so the donors, and people sort of knew we were the right campaign, they knew we were going to do it, and now we had a deadline. Yeah. We were missing one thing and we had a good team but we didn't have a leader who'd run a national campaign. Yeah. And so we've got to find this person in like three days. Sitting in the office outside, is in Bill Shorten's office but obviously not where he was sitting, Um, and... I was just sitting there and I was working with a couple of people through a variety of things, and Tanya Plebiscite comes in and says, oh, God, you heard these things, this Plebiscite campaign's on. I said, yes, yes, I know, Tanya, we're working on it right now. She's like, oh, you know, um, you know Tim Gartrell's left recognize. And so I knew Tim well because he ran the <laughs> he had run the Kevin07 campaign. Yeah. He had, uh, and then he'd gone on to work on recognize. I'd been trying to sort of quietly coax him out of recognize to come to us, but he had his loyalties there, which was the right thing for him to do. Um, But I thought that that would be the case. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, Tim, let's – you know, we've got to go. By the end of that week, you know, he was in the office working, feet on the desk, pulling the whole thing together. So I – for me, that was like – and, and you know, Tim's an amazing positive person. And, you know, there's – there's you know, he was obviously chief of staff to Anthony Albanese for the Albo campaign this year. Obvious why Albo run a very positive sort of positive values campaign. I I can see – one of the reasons behind that is is Tim's work. Tim was wanted to run the set of campaign, positive campaign that we wanted to run and was great with the team. So that was amazing. And then suddenly, you know, we were hitting the phones. And I know, you know, Brooke, my husband at the time, you know, he was hitting the phones. It's hard, harder than anyone else. Um, and, you know, we were just calling everyone who'd ever, we'd ever talked to and said, it's on, it's on, it's on. So we had everything that you need to 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 raise money. We'd done the work, we'd proven how we could do it. Um, it was an Australian values campaign. We were being the positive ones and we had the deadline, we had urgency. And so people suddenly realized this is the sort of thing we want to be on. And in fact, to some extent, you got the thing where people are like, I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out on giving to this because I want to be in on this investment.
0: I remember an event that was at the National Gallery of Australia during a Philanthropy Australia conference, and you and Brooke spoke to a number of the great and the good of the philanthropy sector, and it was palpable. People wanted to be a part of this. And at its peak, you had up to about 90 to 100 staff. You had over 15,000 door knocking volunteers that knocked over on a 100,000 doors, and you had um, over a million calls for yes campaign. That's really extraordinary to pull this all together within three months with Tim leading the campaign. And furthermore, you mentioned some of those lower level donors that were absolutely critical. I think within four months, you secured 10,900 supporters that personally raised over 1.2 million. So you'd gone from securing significant philanthropic investment, institutional philanthropic investment, some major donors, and of course, the everyday donors that were critical to this campaign. That's right.
1: But the time frame was a lot less than that, actually. It, it was much closer to sort of six to eight weeks. But it had but been two years of work before two that. Two years of work. And what people see, they go, oh, wasn't this, this Wasn't it amazing? Yeah. Wasn't this the thing? It was just so natural. And actually, we made it look natural. But it had been two years of work preparing for the campaign, preparing the messaging, preparing the people, developing partners. We couldn't have done a million phone calls without people like GetUp, without the Human Rights Law Center, without ACON, without um, Thorn Harbor Health. You know, we had amazing partners across the spectrum. Um, we also had corporates. Corporates didn't yeah. give, give money, but they, you know, donated time and they donated, you know, people and expertise and all those sorts of things. Um, we also raised over $10 million of in-kind advertising. $10 million of in-kind advertising did have to come alongside, um, some paid advertising as well. And so quite a lot of the, the 10 million raised did end up in paid advertising. Um, but God, we needed it because we were still outspent. I think it was, I think the numbers were at least two or three times the other size num- numbers to how every dollar we spent. They significantly outspent us on the advertising, but we outdid them on the positivity of the campaign, on the Australian va- values of the campaign. But also the people. There was no way they could make a million phone calls. There's no way they could knock on that many doors. They could have that positive energy, of, of in the media. And and I'll give you a great example. We we launched our campaigns on the same day because it was like there was an obvious weekend to do it. Mm-hmm. Our campaign launch was thousands of. Australians of all generations, young people, old people, knocking on doors, talking to people about why to vote yes. Their campaign launch was in a in the conference centre, um, in a dark conference room about, you know, it's okay to say no with negative messaging. And ours was just about, you know, different generations of people doing amazing things, being positive.
0: The numbers spoke for themselves. We jumped to the day in November, that fateful day on the 15th of November. Tell me, where were you on that day, Tom?
1: 15th of November was the day that the numbers came in. Um, And I was um, here in Sydney at Alfred Park on the stage with 10,000 other people um, waiting for those numbers to come in and um, hoping that they were consistent with the detailed polling that we had been were doing. You, were we, you confident? I was pretty confident. And because we we had quite secret polling and what we were doing was we were polling people um, every two days through the campaign. And what we were seeing is, you know, people were saying what we had done in previous votes about two-thirds of Australians were saying yes. But what we were worried about was once they came to the table and wrote it down, What would happen, and so we we measured what they were thinking before, when they got their polling paper, when they filled in their polling paper, and when the polling paper was mailed. And don't forget. The most important thing was that polling paper went into the post. This was a voluntary thing. And we were really concerned that a lot of our yes voters were soft yeses. And we were worried that they wouldn't post it, that it would just get not filled in or filled in and left on the kitchen sink. So we were asking specifically those questions. But what we were watching as the the weeks came in is that people were basically saying yes, they'd sent them and they'd marked them yes. So
0: So you had the numbers, but you're standing on the stage.
1: I was still terrified. What if it's wrong? I'm pretty sure we'd get to fifty percent. Yeah. But we needed more than fifty percent because I knew that if I got like fifty six percent, the other side would say, Oh, that's not really a mandate. Forty five forty-four percent of people are against this thing and you know, you can't do it. And also was important was the the messaging around not only were this as a win, but it was an overwhelming win. So we'd we'd done a lot of work preparing all This messaging and all our tweets and all our press releases, and we were we want to be out there saying it's an overwhelming win, this is the biggest result ever, this is an amazing result, and that we were terrified because, like, that just be so. What be was awful. the number, Tom? 62% in support. Um, oh, and what was really interesting was how many people voted, yeah, and so, um, it was in really high number of people voted, and I remember we were all. A lot of us were terrified about that, um, because that without that, it wouldn't have had the legitimacy. Yeah. But it really showed that that Australians supported it. I mean, if that was a two-party preferred election, it would have been the biggest landslide ever in Australia's history. Um, uh, you know, it was just it was just an amazing result. We then, um, you know, had a big party. But the big thing is the the work started again the next day. Exactly so I was right. in Canberra. Um, first thing the next day, um, in the Senate, and we're putting the, the, the legislation through the Senate, because the disgusting thing about the other side is that even though they had lost so resoundingly in the, the popular vote or the popular survey, they still tried to, to to make it fail through the parliament. It didn't pass until de- 7th, December 7th, so it's still another three weeks of work of getting that through the parliament. and That was exhausting when everyone was like, we've already won. I'm like, yeah, but we haven't until we get that vote through the House of Representatives.
0: So where were done. you on the 7th of December?
1: 7th of December, I was in the House of Representatives um, uh, uh, well, in the parliament and making sure that that we had every, every tactic that the other side were, were going to play. Yeah. We had every... Thing lined up to make sure that that we had every every debating point they'd have, we'd have d- different debating points for all our, all our MPs. We 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 constantly circling the numbers, making sure that everyone was there. Um, and yeah, it looked again from the outside, like it was a superbly run very easily, but it really was tough. Um, it was a bit tough. It was a lot tougher through the Senate because once it was through the Senate, it was very hard for the House to to oppose it. They tried to amend it. So therefore it would have to go back to the Senate. Therefore it was the last sitting day of the year. So therefore it would take not to, to be the following year. And then they'd sort of have the opportunity to delay it, cause more problems. Um, but, you know, we, we forced it through.
0: And so you, when it was put through, where were you physically in the
1: I was sitting next to my mother yeah. <laughs> and uh, my husband and um and in the House of Representatives watching it go through and uh there were a few moments through that day where there were tears um you know it was, it was just just overwhelming to have it yeah. go through um and then there were many many cheers it was really a in the end, it was a really fun day in the house. Like there was so much emotion in, in the house. Not only was it full at the normal level where the gallery is operating, but there's also an upper level in the house, which was also full. And then there was spilling out and there were TV screens outside. The minute it went through, we went out into the, um, into the, uh, the common area between the House of Representatives and the Senate, and it was basically a just a full party. Like it was, I've <laughs> never like a spontaneous party. Um, you know, there were TV cameras everywhere. We we're dancing in front of the cameras. Um, you know, all the MPs were there. All the you know, you know Magda was there. Thorpey was there. It was just uh, amazing. And I remember then there was an opportunity for Anna Brown and I um, to address. The, the group there. And, and, you know, it was just overwhelming talking to people after. Um, such an amazing win. The joy on everyone's faces, unambiguously, we knew we had done an amazing thing for Australia.
0: You had done an amazing thing that involved thousands and thousands of people, but the critical role philanthropy played to make it happen is undeniable. And the critical role you played in making philanthropy step up in Australia.
1: Thank you. It was a team effort, but you are right. If it weren't for people who had put money down early in the campaign, people who put money down later in the campaign, it made all the difference. And I can say adamantly, we would still be dealing with this thing right now um and probably we would have it dealt with under an albanese government but we would be dealing with this thing right now if this thing hadn't been dealt with
0: and the toll but, it would have taken on and, so many families
1: and the toll it would continue to take um it's not just philanthropy though and i think it's really important to acknowledge that um you know there have been people advocating on this issue for generations um There've been people right from the start, and they're the ones who've done the most. Um, you know, back in the '60s and '70s, you know, the, the the fight that that those women and men fought is incredible, and and many of them, you know, paid a big price for that. Um, and many people have done so much along the way. And you know, philanthropy in some respects was a lot later to the table. Like it was really the advocates who were there first, and really a lot of people, you know. Pretty lonely for these people. And, you know, I was late to the party. I was only involved in the last couple of years. Um, And it's fantastic that we were the ones, you know, who are part of pushing that through. Um, But there have been, you know, so many people who have done so much. But
0: the work was not yet
1: done. The work continues to go.
0: 18 months (laughs) later, you as chair and Anna Brown as CEO set up Equality Australia. Tell me the reason for that and the role philanthropy continues to play to this day.
1: It's really important that it, people realize that marriage equality, you know, we all thought that was the big thing and that was going to solve it, and it solved a lot. Um, but there are still laws in this country that that discriminate against our community, um, particularly the trans community, intersex community, but even you know around parenting, around a whole range of different issues. Um, Anna and I realized that if you're going to have a professional campaign run against you, you need to be professional yourselves. And so we realized that we need to step up and have a permanent presence in Canberra. Um, we realized that we needed a small team to do that. We didn't need the 16 or 20 now that the other side had, but we know we know we need a team of six or seven people to do that. So, you know, we have a, sm- a small team with a modest budget, but they are doing amazing things. You know, they've achieved so much. Mm-hmm. And you know we've got the other side trying to you know trying to it's religious discrimination acts to to, to allow discrimination against not just our community but against women against the disabled. Um, it's Anna's team and the Equality Australia team that stepped up to do that. You know they've fought for birth certificate reform. They're fighting on so many different fronts to to help the the most marginalised in our community. We absolutely we need we need you know, the community to, to still step up. And it has been a challenge because, you know, we had a lot of burnout from the campaign. Yeah. Certainly I was burnt out. I know many others were burnt out. Fortunately, Anna still had plenty of energy <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, and continues to this day. And a lot of our donors were burnt out too. But, you know, we also – now that team is is – Clearly, kinking goals. You know, I think it's really much easier for donors to see. Yeah, this is the this team is continuing to be, you know, an amazing team. But they've got that legacy of marriage equality, but they, you know, they're doing so well pushing things in the parliament for this community. Um, and you know, we still need to you know, donors to to understand that we need to support people who are doing it really tough and people who have the law against them. And it's particularly the case where you know there's intersectionality issues. There are so many issues that our community still continue to face, um, as much as it is much better than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, and this is an amazing team that's doing that right now. And
0: philanthropy continues to play a critical role. And it's wonderful to see so many of those cornerstone donors and supporters, including yourself and the Snow Foundation, continue to support Equality Australia into the future. Tom Snow- Thank you for your extraordinary leadership and advocacy for equality in so many ways. You have inspired so many and achieved so much. Thank you so very much, Tom.
1: Thank you. You're too sweet. Appreciate it.
0: Here are my key learnings. Tom's evolution from accidental activist to philanthropic investor and ultimately to co chief fundraiser was not one he initially set out. But because the campaign was so personally important to him and his family, and he had the means to contribute, he courageously stepped into a leadership role that demanded a huge commitment from him. He continued to draw upon courage and commitment to actively champion, advocate, and ask. And as a result, the campaign secured over $10 million in investment within two years. Tom and Brooks' investment of one million from the outset of the campaign was critical in securing three other cornerstone donors: Snow Foundation, Alan Joyce, and Paulo Sullivan. These foundational cornerstone gifts helped to secure institutional investment from the likes of Meyer Foundation, securing major gifts from individuals and families who shared campaign values was the third stage, followed by the lower level giving at grassroots level. All contributions were important for the campaign, but the strategic sequencing from biggest to smallest was critical in underwriting the campaign and giving others the confidence to invest. Advocacy campaigns are subject to innumerable variables, many outside the control of a campaign, particularly within a complex and highly charged political environment. The campaign faced a great deal of uncertainty as to when and if marriage equality would be achieved. Maintaining fundraising momentum was critical to the sustainability of the campaign and providing confidence to supporters. Thank you for listening to Raising It. We hope this episode has demonstrated the power of philanthropy to create transformational social impact and will inspire you to realise your own noble ambitions. For more information, please go to nobleambition.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode.